Mortimer, episode 26. Thank you for tuning into Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Mortimer is an entire novel that you may decide to read in print or digital form. Yet each episode of this audio podcast is broken up into a serial of sorts for your enjoyment. We hope you enjoy this duty-free audio presentation of Mortimer. Hi there, this is Morris. You may recognize me from the ice cream fiasco, but I tell you, this Mortimer podcast shall be my vindication. The morning buzzed with energy. The fall festival was upon them, and word had gone out that the Esquire was due to arrive at the port before noon. Particularly cross, Neville stood at the kitchen sink, violently scrubbing his hands. No matter what I do, I can't get that smell off my hands. It was kind of you to take Jeb out all day. Mrs. Peabody was packing a large picnic basket. Oh, I'm reminded of my kindness every time I adjust my bow tie or, or place my hands anywhere near my face. Is Neville complaining about his hands again? Bobby Sue burst into the kitchen, her face bright, eyes wide. Her hair was piled atop her head and spilled outward. She was wearing a gaudy summer dress and her lips were smeared with a red tint. Still complaining is more like it, Millie piped up. She was pulling hot rolls out of the oven and dropped the tray on the counter with a clatter. "'Careful, darling,' Mrs. Peabody scolded. "'Well, you'd be complaining, too, if your hands smelled like human feces.' Neville was in no mood to be teased. He'd been up all night engulfed in the overpowering aroma. "'You'll get used to it after a while,' Bobby Sue tried to be encouraging. "'Boy, I can't wait to go to the festival. We ain't seen a real city festival in almost twenty years.' Bobby Sue looked over her shoulder as her husband entered the kitchen, wearing nothing but his khaki overalls. Ain't that right, baby? Jeb grinned and draped an arm over his wife. Hey, old chap, what are you doing? Neville grimaced, washing my hands, as you see. Oh, that ain't gonna work. Then what do you suggest? Neville asked through gritted teeth. Eat you an orange. What? An orange! Jeb plucked a ripe orange from the basket of fruit on the table and tossed it toward Neville, who ducked as it flew past his head. Ouch! Billy shouted as she rubbed the spot where the orange had struck her shoulder. Oh, sorry there, little miss. The citrus in the orange works miracles for cleaning up messes. It's what I use on Jeb. You can stop right there. Neville shut off the water and retrieved the fruit. If you will all excuse me... After Neville had left the kitchen, Millie and Mrs. Peabody wrapped up the hot rolls in a clean towel and added them to the basket. Jeb poked around looking for a bite to eat while Bobby Sue helped herself to some coffee. Jeb, if you'd like some breakfast, I'm happy to cook you an egg. You got eggs? Jeb's face lit up. In the pantry there, Mrs. Peabody closed the basket lid. Millie, put this in the car and let Mrs. Dixon know that we're ready to go. Are you sure about bringing Mrs. Iscariot today? 
Millie accepted the basket. Mrs. Dixon says it's important for people to see her in society. Since she made her unexpected appearance at Mortimer's party, well, we can no longer say that she's abroad. Now, go on. Jeb was cracking several eggs into a glass. Mrs. Peabody crossed to where he stood at the counter. Let me help you with that. No problem, missus. This is just dandy. Jeb stuck a soiled finger into the glass and, smiling at Mrs. Peabody, he stirred the eggs. Well, at least let me get you a pan. No need. Mrs. Peabody watched as the man placed the glass to his lips. He tilted his head back and his Adam's apple bobbed as he gulped down the raw eggs. How many did to eat? Bobby Sue looked up from her coffee. But those were raw. Oh, he does that all the time, Bobby Sue said with a wave. Don't you worry about old Jeb here. Jeb let out a ferocious belch and patted his belly, a grin on his face. Mrs. Peabody recoiled from the odour. Neville came back into the kitchen, his head covered with his bowler, a cane in hand. Mrs. Iscariot is ready to leave. Yeah, how's your hands? Belched Jeb. I'm sorry to say the orange did the trick. Yee-haw, Jeb shouted. Come on, Bobby, let's go to the fair. Maybe on our way back we could swing by the relief area to check out the inventory, huh? <laughs> Neville rolled his eyes and left the kitchen again, leaving Mrs. Peabody awkwardly staring at the kissing couple. Inventory? Jay, baby, oh! Bobby Sue giggled between kisses. You gotta stop calling it that. She glanced over at Mrs. Peabody. Uh, he's just a kid in the house. Mrs. Dixon entered the kitchen through the back door, looking slightly frazzled. How is she? Oh, as good as she'll ever be. Mrs. Dixon glanced at Mrs. Peabody before picking up the jug of lemonade that had nearly been forgotten. Oh, I do hope she doesn't wander off. Mrs. Peabody switched off the lights. Are you two coming? Mrs. Dixon asked crossly. Yes, ma'am. Jeb removed his tongue briefly from his wife's throat and swatted her behind. Come on, baby. Let's go. The dock was packed. Crowds from around the state had gathered in Georgetown for the annual fall festival and to bear witness to the triumphant return of the Esquire, the ship that prevailed over one of the largest storms in history. Anderson pushed past rows upon rows of spectators, lined up along the roads in preparation for the parade. Bluegrass music from the bandstand resonated down the streets and across the field, accompanied by the horns from the ships in the harbour. The energy was high and paralleled with a bright blue sky and unyieldingly dazzling sun. He was searching for her. His bowler was tipped down over his eyes and his walking cane was in his right hand. He moved with purpose, his thoughts aglow and heart thundering in anticipation. He was a man on a mission. Would she recognize him? Did she feel the same way? After all these years, what would it be like to see his dear sweet Ellie once more? Swept away, Anderson did not see the woman in front of him, and it was not until she shrieked that he was yanked from his reverie. I dare say, oh, I am sorry, madam. What's this all about? A burly man stood up, fists ready. Truly, I'm sorry. It was an accident, sir. Anderson attempted to get past the wall of man. My apologies to the lady. Why don't you watch where you're going? My friend is an awful klutz when it comes to navigating crowds. John appeared at Anderson's side. I've an extra two tickets for snacks in the jumbo tent. He held up two slips of paper, piquing the man's interest. Let's say I pass it along to you, and you let my friend leave here without a black eye. Hmm? The man considered. 
Let him go, darling. It was an honest mistake. The woman eyeballed the tickets. Well, it is crowded. John shoved the papers into the man's hand and grabbed his friend's sleeve. Thank you kindly. Then he pulled Anderson away into the mass of spectators. The music increased in volume as they neared the stage. Where did you come from? Anderson scanned the festival grounds. I thought you were going to find Herberger. It was too jam-packed to find anyone in all this nonsense. You found me. At that moment, there was a surge among the masses, for something had appeared on the horizon. It is her! She's finally returned! Anderson knew the Centennial shipping line fleet like he knew the face of his own mother. People pushed and pulled, drunk on caramel corn and soda. Anderson put forth a tremendous effort to remain standing despite the chaos. He narrowed his eyes as the boat came closer. Yes, he was absolutely certain that the ship was not what everyone thought it was. I'll be damned. There she is. The pride of the Centennial shipping line. It's not the Esquire. Of course it is. John shot Anderson a condescending look. Don't you think I know what my own ship looks like? That ship has two sails on the bowsprit. The Esquire has three. Anderson met John's stare. And the Esquire is not your ship. John straightened his jacket. Ah, oh, teach me to save you from being punched in the face. Next time I'll let the guy bloody your nose. Oh, let it go, John. Anderson abandoned his search and he grabbed John's sleeve pulling him out of the current and onto the clear spot of grass to the side of a walkway. This whole song and dance, is this what you really want? John backed out of the path of two children running with abandon. What are you talking about? Running a company. The tedium of contracts and negotiations. I know for a fact you hate all of that. I was born to run this company, John barked back. Are you trying to back out now? Because if you are, I'll just have to find another business associate. Fine, I've heard enough of your drivel anyway. Anderson turned and stomped off through the crowd. Fine, John called impotently after his friend. I feel like I'm going to die of nerves. Mrs. Longhorn settled into her chair, a glass of iced tea in her hand. They'd reserved a little square on the lawn in one of the best spots, with a bandstand just ahead and the harbour to the left. A lovely tree offered them shade, should they desire reprieve from the blistering sun. Mrs. Longhorn had selected a spot out of the shade, however, for the fall air was crisp and mild. Stop drinking so much tea. You know it makes you nervous. But what if the boat does not come today? What if something happened to Lily Lou? Her eyes were moist. Oh, I do miss my sweet daughter. Oh, the other evening you were calling her a delinquent. I do believe that was you, dear. Something about united ranks of heinous adolescence? Mr. Longhorn was affronted. I said no such thing. Leopold, his mother's voice interrupted the marital squabble. Do assist me. Of course, mother. Mr. Longhorn jumped up from his chair and took the food from Mrs. Longhorn's hand. She straightened her skirt and hat and sat herself in the chair next to her daughter-in-law. Rosalind, dearest, you should stay out of the sun. You know, your, your skin will turn to leather. Yes, ma'am. Mrs. Longhorn obediently shifted her chair into the shade. She pulled her shawl closer. You're sure the ship is due to arrive today? Yes. I received a message from the captain yesterday. Oh, look, look, isn't that, isn't that Mrs. Iscariot? She pointed across the way with enthusiasm. Mr. Longhorn looked to where his wife indicated. Who? Mrs. Longhorn craned her neck in an attempt to see who they were speaking of. 
There, that woman with the black hat. Oh, there are far too many people in my way. Mr. Longhorn sat back, bored. He opened his newspaper. I heard that she made her first appearance in over two years at the Mortimer's party. The elder Mrs. Longhorn went to work on her plate of food. I confess I, I hardly recall anything after dinner. Mrs. Longhorn smiled mischievously and lowered her voice. I can't keep it a secret any longer. Just after the party, I sent a letter to Mr. Ascariot. Mrs. Longhorn felt her face burn as she remembered how boldly her mother-in-law had declared her passionate intrigues with this man. It was highly improper to speak of such things, especially in front of refined company. Did you? Indeed. Mrs. Longhorn was confused by the woman's odd expression, but before she could inquire further, a burst of cheering erupted from the crowd. There she is! The Esquire! Mrs. Longhorn leapt up, hopefully, trying to see into the distance, but there were too many tall men obstructing her view. Uh, Leopold, which ship is it? How should I know? Don't just sit there! The elder woman kicked her son's chair. Stand up! Yes, mother. Mr. Longhorn stood up and peered into the distance. Mrs. Dixon stood and held her breath. And here she is, folks, came the voice from the microphone. The mayor was wearing a stark white suit, complete with a top hat, boots and a cane. The most magnificent ship in the fleet. The illustrious, the magnificent, the breathtaking... His voice fell silent as the ship grew nearer. It's not the Esquire. Mrs. Dixon whirled around and looked accusingly at Neville. What? It's not my fault. What ship is it? Mrs. Peabody had been tending to Mrs. Iscariot, who was seated in a chair, wearing black and eating a picnic lunch. Mr. Peabody stood up and joined Mrs. Dixon at the edge of the rope. That's the Longhorn ship. What? Neville joined them. That's impossible. Baby, Bobby Sue shook Jeb's arm. Ah, Percy is home. Yee-pee! Jeb punched a fistful of corn on the cob into the air and bits of food shot out of his mouth as he cheered. Let's go meet him at the dock. The Binkleys left their plates and, climbing over the rope, they ran across the grass, paying no mind to the blankets and picnic baskets they clambered over en route. There are so many people. How are we ever going to find him? Look for his hair. Hi, Jeb pointed. There's a Miss Longfellow or whatever his name is. Leo, you, Leo. Bobby Sue waved with vigor. Mrs. Longhorn heard them before her husband did. Upon seeing Jeb shirtless beneath his overalls, she blushed and tapped Mr. Longhorn on the shoulder. He looked over and grimaced as the Binkleys ambled toward their party. It's the Longhorn ship, realized the mayor. Suddenly there were dozens of hands of congratulations patting Mr. Longhorn's shoulders. The noise was deafening. The shouting, the band and the mayor as he babbled over the megaphone. Bobby Sue and Jeb pressed forward, their eyes scanning the crowd. The men at the dock extended a walkway that stretched up to an opening on the side of the deck. Then the first of the ship's inhabitants appeared at the rail and waved. The crowd exploded in happiness. There they are, the African safari. Seems like the expedition had just left. Time flies. Jim, Bobby Sue cried with emotion. I see him. I see my red-headed angel. 
Jeb looked at where Bobby Sue was pointing and his face spread into a massive smile. Well, looky there. And that purty gal he's gotten with him. The passengers began to disembark and were rushed by the many enthusiastic South Carolinians. Bobby Sue was the first to reach Percy and Lily Lou, for the Longhorns were still being swarmed by the approving Southerners. Baby! Baby! She leapt into her son's arms and started to squeeze him with all her might. Ma! You're hurting me! Percy whined, but his freckled face flushed with pleasure. There's the dame you done ran off with! Jeb pulled an unsuspecting Lily Lou into an embrace. You're not mad at us? She was shocked. Why would we be? Bobby Sue pulled Lily Lou into her bosom. Lily? Lily Lou? It was her mother. Mama! My God, I thought you'd been killed. Mrs. Longhorn pushed through the crowd and embraced her daughter. I was worried sick. How could you do that to your mother? Her father had managed to escape his fans with the assistance of his controlling and somewhat terrifying mother, who stood behind him, growling at anyone who dared to encroach. Hello, Papa. Lily Lou looked up sheepishly at her father, who was less than pleased to see her again. I have never been more worried in all my life. Leo, we're mighty glad you got the ship back, Jeb interrupted. He slapped a stained hand on Mr. Longhorn's meticulous suit jacket. And look at there, our kids are in love. That isn't true, Mr. Longhorn retorted. Lily Lou, come with us. But it is true. Lily Lou pulled a delighted Percy close. But how can that be? Sir, I be a wantin' to ask for Lil's hand in marriage. Bobby Sue shrieked, putting her hands to her face. Yee-haw! Jeb leapt into the air and grabbed his son, pulling him into a headlock and rubbing his fists into the scalp of red hair. The crowd burst out in approval. Oh, how romantic! Oh, young love! Papa... Lily Lou went to her speechless father, grasping his hands. I know you love me, and that, uh, and that is why you kept me close. But I, I long for adventure. I needed to get away. Percy was willing to make that possible for me. The time I spent aboard that ship was the best of my life. I love Percy, and I want to marry him. But how can it be true? Mister Longhorn asked again. His wife wiped a tear out of her eye, glanced up at her husband. It's not the match we'd expected. Lily Lou, Mr. Longhorn grasped his daughter's hands in desperation. I'll stop turning men away from the door. I'll, I'll loosen up on whom you're allowed to see. And, and if you don't want to marry that Brenard fella, well, I'm, I'm not going to try and make you. Leo, darling, Herbert got engaged to Miss Perry one week ago. Mrs. Longhorn placed a hand on her husband's arm. What? You see, not everything is printed in the papers. Papa, I want to be with Percy. Lily Lou looked up at her father pleadingly. I do not have to give my approval to this. I do remember a time when my son was involved in a very similar situation, belted out the elder Mrs. Longhorn. Mother, not now. Oh, you be quiet retorted the dowager. As I recall, you and your pretty little wife here met under the most questionable of circumstances. What did he do? Jeb had abandoned his objective of giving Percy a world-class noogie and focused his attention on Mrs. Longhorn. We're family now. Oh, I'd love to hear the story. 
My dear Leo here would sneak out of his father's house at dusk to drink and carouse all night, Mrs. Longhorn said loud enough for all to hear. Mother, that's how he met Rosalind here one night, I do recall, at a cave party. Oh, a cave, Jeb elbowed Bobby Sue. Mother, Lily Lou was shocked. It was just a little get-together. It's not what it sounds like. Mrs. Longhorn shook her demure head nervously. How many months later was Reginald born? Mother, Mr. Longhorn bellowed, enough. Satisfied, the elder Mrs. Longhorn smiled and winked at Percy. Go on, the crowd pressed. Let him get married. How can you say no to love? Mrs. Longhorn gazed up at her husband. We did have quite an adventure, didn't we? Her husband's expression softened. We did, and I wouldn't change a thing. He looked down at his daughter, who watched him hopefully. Only on one condition. But before he could say anything else, Lily Lou yelped and leapt into her father's arms. Thank you, Papa. Thank you. He moved across the harbour quickly, searching, pushing, and moving forward. The ship had disembarked and workers were fluttering around, moving cargo and shouting out or taking orders. The crew zipped up and down the gangway, replenishing inventory and preparing for the next stop. His heart picked up speed. He knew he was getting closer. He arrived at the grassy lawn that edged the harbour. This was near the bandstand, where many of the locals had chairs set up in perfect position for viewing the entertainment and the ships in the harbour. A string quartet was playing, while some young man stood awkwardly to one side, holding a trumpet. His eyes scanned the crowd. Then it happened. The moment Anderson had been longing for, for what seemed an eternity. He knew her the moment his eyes fell upon her. Though she was facing the opposite direction, he could tell by the way she held her body. He recognized the regal angle of her head, and though a black hat was atop her head, he saw a curl of hair that had been dusted with silver in the years since he had last seen her. He lost his breath. Anderson? A voice came from behind. It was John again. Stop following me! Anderson did not even look back this time as he moved faster toward his objective. Fire, disease, or famine would not stop him in his current trajectory. He must finally speak to Ellie. Anderson, stop! John grabbed his friend's shoulder urgently. There's something I must tell you. Irritation filled Anderson, and he clenched his jaw. Resigning to a moment of delay, he whirled around. I don't care what it is. I must see her. But she's not who you think she is anymore. She's not the same. I, I just, I don't want you to get hurt. Nothing you can say will change my mind. I loved her the moment I laid eyes on her. There was a high-pitched squeal from the bandstand, and the band played a major series of chords, exciting the crowds with new harmonies. The mayor stood at the microphone, ready to make an announcement. Welcome to the Fall Festival. It is I, your illustrious mayor, here to share with you the next great act. At John's distraction, Anderson pulled away, dashing through the crowd. She was just ahead, sitting with her family, facing the stage. His heart throbbed and his feet moved like lead. Georgetown was founded in 1526 by your ancestors and mine. Today marks the 394th anniversary 
of our fair city and the tenth anniversary of the Fall Festival. He hurried forward, and stopping in front of the rope, he stood directly before her. The woman Anderson remembered to be the family's nanny narrowed her brow in irritation. "'Excuse me, may I help you?' She saw him as he approached. Her face angled toward his, and her lips parted in surprise. Anderson's eyes grew moist as she met his gaze. Her voice was smooth and low, just as he remembered. "'Eugene?' The city was in absolute chaos as he pulled the black vehicle onto Market Street. It had been a long time since he'd been in Georgetown. Once upon a time, the town had been an oasis of hopes and dreams. But by the time he had faked his death two years ago, the city had lost its glitter and gleam. Gerard snickered to himself, remembering that fateful night. He had left Matilda standing at the dock, crying for him like a baby— Served her right for cheating and robbing so many innocent rich men. She had gotten what she deserved. Gerard was rather proud of the ingenuity of his idea. Through his escape and infamous death, he'd really gone out with a bang. Quite perfect for a man of his caliber. Everything had played out flawlessly. Gerard had called in an anonymous tip into the station and had spotted a dunce of a young cop immediately upon entering the church that night. As instructed, Mr. Orbright had prepared Gerard two boats. They were docked together and ready to go, his favourite ship alongside a smaller decoy attached by a rope. Inside the small boat was a bundle of dynamite. Gerard had dragged Matilda to the harbour, knowing that their spy would follow. After delivering his final overture to Matilda, and with a flurry of intrigue, Gerard jumped aboard his boat and pushed offshore while Matilda screamed threats and caused a scene. About a hundred yards from the dock, Gerard went to the front of the boat, lit the fuse, and cut the rope, detaching the decoy boat. He was on his way to Cuba, after he distanced himself several hundred yards from the decoy ship. Bam! The small boat was blown to bits. Gerard's only regret was that he had been too far offshore to see the look on Matilda and the cops' faces when his boat exploded. He indulged in imagining the officer's expression of self-congratulation as he slapped cuffs on Matilda's bony wrists for the murder of the most important man in the world. Gerard had never experienced regret leaving the Centennial or his home and life in Georgetown. His death had been well-timed. Marital relations with Ellie had all but disintegrated due to her angry preoccupation with his keeping mistresses, and despite having hired a seemingly well-qualified nanny, his son, Mortimer Iscariot, had grown up to become a hapless misanthrope, who only brought him shame and embarrassment to the Iscariot name. But all that had changed in a moment. He knew it was time to come home when he'd received Robert's telegram. Miraculously, Mortimer had not only become a captain of the best ship on the Iscariot fleet, but that he had also managed to get a hold of some of the finest tobacco of the century, thereby making the Iscariot name even more wealthy and esteemed than before. Thoughts happy, he drove deeper into town and was pleasantly surprised at how Georgetown had changed. In reality, or in his perception, during the time he had been abroad, things were looking up. He pulled into a parking spot and turned off the engine. It seemed that he'd arrived just in time for the annual fall festival. 
it was a perfect way to celebrate his return. He would go to the festival first, and then he would go back to see his former mansion. That residence had given him immense amounts of pleasure. During his travels, Gerard had purchased innumerable items that had filled its halls with treasures. While his wife bored him and his son horrified him, the manor had never disappointed. It was a masterpiece, to be sure, with grand rooms, decadent furniture, luxurious tapestries, and the finest frivolities that money could buy. He lowered his top hat in an attempt to be discreet. He was dead, after all. He was going to have to make his grand reappearance as awe-inspiring as possible. People almost never came back from the dead, and you certainly only had one try at making it memorable. He closed the car door and inhaled the crisp aroma of fall, mixed with a caramel corn and chocolate. Touching his hat, he lowered his gaze as a young couple strolled past with their gaggle of children. After they passed, he turned and faced the direction they had gone, and with a kick in his step, he headed toward the square. John was at Anderson's side in a moment. I'm sorry, Mrs. Dixon set her plate of dessert down and dusted off her hands. She calls everyone that. Anderson's expression changed. He angled his head. Does she? That's what I was trying to tell you, John piped in. She wanders the house day and night talking about some Eugene and carrying on about apples. It's you. Yes. Anderson was deaf to all else, save the object of his attention. What's going on here? Mrs. Dixon looked from one to the other. Excuse me, do I know you? Oh, yes. We met many years ago. He broke eye contact to meet Mrs. Dixon's. My name is Eugene Anderson, and I've been in love with your mistress from the very first time we met. Orange backed against the white curtain pillar as the square dancers went into the finale of their performance. I'll join hands and circle wide, spread right out like an old cow hide. I'll join hands in a great big ring, circle round and round with a dear little thing. The dancers followed the instructions with commitment and delight. The crowd applauded its appreciation. And as the dancers took their bows, the mayor returned to the stage. Let's give it up for the Down in Carolina dancers. The audience whooped and hollered and the hoofers shuffled off stage left. And for our next act, weaving with Mrs. Wilders. Everybody, let's give a warm Georgetown welcome to Mrs. Wilders. As the woman set up her demonstration, the mayor met Orange at the edge of the stage. He put the megaphone down and crooked a finger. Me? Orange pointed at his chest, looking around. Yeah, you, the mayor hissed. Sorry, what's that? With a roll of his eyes, he stalked over to Orange. Say, what is this all about? You've been looking around here for half the day. Well, I'm comfortable, really. Don't you got anything better to do? Your next set isn't for another two hours. Well, the view's great from up here. I can't let you just stand here. The mayor slipped his thumbs into suspenders that were beneath his coat. It's a bothering people. Well, you're the only one that seems to mind, Orange said, more bravely than he felt. Don't make me call the police and have you taken in for disorderly conduct, the mayor threatened. He glanced over his shoulder and plastered a fake grin on his face for the crowd. Then he whirled back to Orange. 
What's it going to be, kid? I am the police. You're the orange kid, ain't you? The mayor asked with condescension. Yeah? You're the one that gotten fired. It was a guise so that I could go undercover. It wasn't a total lie. While he'd not officially been rehired, he was doing police business. Where's your badge? The mayor challenged. It's not on me. Then why should I believe you? It's a matter of security. Call the superintendent. I'll do just that, the mayor growled. And if he don't know what I'm talking about, I'm going to have my man toss you into the harbour. Great. Fantastic. Orange stepped out of the path and the angry white-draped city leader marched down the stairs. He took a slow breath. That was close, he muttered. Boy, would he have been in trouble if that meddling mayor had tossed him off the stage. Stay on the stage, the sergeant had ordered, so Orange was damn determined to stay on the stage. He crossed his arm over the other that held the trumpet and surveyed the crowd. Emily had come to the festival with the Montagues, another newlywed couple. Emily and Peter Orange had met them at church during his long hours working on the force. Emily had developed a rather fine friendship with Mrs. Montague. He watched Emily and felt his heart melt a little. She was by far the prettiest girl at the festival, and that was not because Orange was biased. Fact was fact. His wife was an angel. She pushed her hands through her hair, a gesture she did often, and Orange forgot to breathe. She laughed at something her companion said, and then, sensing that she was being watched, looked up and met his gaze with smiling eyes. The audience had become restless, and many were milling about, inadequately entertained by the weaving demonstration that was happening on stage. Orange didn't blame them. Watching a woman weave was about as exciting as watching grass grow. He yawned. Then, in the distance, he saw an austere-looking older man. Orange narrowed his eyes, willing them to focus. He'd never seen this character before. It did not match the description of Gerard Iscariot. This man was at least seventy years old, and while he approached the park with an easy smile, dressed in a fancy suit, something told Orange that this man was not from the South. He watched as the mayor shot out from stage left. He must have identified the man that Orange had been watching, for almost immediately he straightened his stainless white jacket and started toward the fellow. Orange knew the tactics of the Georgetown mayor. That man was obsessed with money and family connections. It was no surprise to see him approaching this stranger. Orange smiled to himself. The mayor was also a notorious blabbermouth. If he knew the man, all it would take was a subtle inquiry, and in no time Orange would learn every detail that the mayor knew. There was only one thing left to do. Lean back and watch it all unfold. Learn more at www.mortimerbook.com. Copyright 2022, M.W. Cedars. Written by M.W. Cedars, the author pseudonym, audiobook performance by Michael Drew. Neither this author nor affiliates, comrades, patriots, or associates are engaged in rendering professional or non-professional advice, services, recommendations, or any other suggestions of any kind to the individual reader. This book is purely fiction and all opinions and all likenesses of characters, industries, cities, or associations with any place or anyone you know are purely coincidental. Thank you for subscribing to Mortimer, a book written by M.W. Cedars and narrated by Michael Drew. The theme music was written and performed by Danny Torgerson. Be sure to download the next episode.